Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Bondcast, the podcast series where we discuss the biggest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm John Briggs, standing in for Imogen Bakra. And in this episode, I'm joined by Giles Gale, our head of European rate strategy, and John Avruzzi, our US rate strategist. All right. Uh, before I start, I do want to say our thoughts and prayers go out to anybody impacted by the conflict in, in Ukraine, colleagues, anyone listening, friends, and those of you who have friends and family that are impacted, please know our thoughts are with you. It's a difficult time and I wanna make sure that we're all cognizant as we look at financial markets to talk about impacts on asset prices that there is a human cost to this conflict. So our thoughts are with everyone. Um, with that, it's kind of hard to know where to start on this, the events of the last week and you know the impact on, on markets. Thankfully, we're just zoning in on bond markets here. Um, I'm going to throw the first one to Giles. Sorry, I'm putting you right on the hot seat. We've had some of the most volatile moves in a long time this past week. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts? How do you how do you think about the market in light of what's going on and in light of the volatility? Yeah, I mean, it's been really quite, in fact, exceptional. Uh, you know, I, I did a little check back to see the last time we really had anything like it and you know obviously in some peripheral markets there have been a few episodes over the years but I mean in gilts and buns you really I mean you know gilts in particular you have to go back maybe 30 years to see this sort of volatility I mean you know, so so we're talking about really really off the charts exceptional moves and so that so, so I'm mainly talking about Monday and Tuesday when we had a very very big fall in yields, and then of course since then we've given almost all of it back. So you know it seemed like there was you no. Know, I, I mean we felt like there was a bearish consensus out there, which at the same time was likely to be progressively validated by by central bank movement. Um, and so we weren't all that concerned about that. Of course, the, I, I think what was happening was that people were rethinking what they thought um, central banks were, were likely to do, in particular the, the ECB, um, but not only the ECB. And so essentially, you know, again, thinking back to what happened last year where people got too short too early and then it was... It wasn't validated. It was just a pain trade, which really basically just you know, continued for the for, for, for the whole of the rest of the year. Um, now I think that the bears all just ran for the hills, and so we got weeks of repricing all just come through in one day. And then, you know, presumably, you know, that was then enough to to clean enough positions that you know, when people discovered that there wasn't a follow through, we came back. Okay, fine. So where does that leave us? I mean. No, there are some oddities, as you would expect. I mean, I think the front end in, in the US is a little cheap compared to at least the direction of travel globally. Uh, that, of course, has a lot to do with uh, Powell's testimony, which I'm sure that we'll get onto. And um, you know, so I think that the, the market still sees the, the Fed to a certain degree kind of on track and it's sort of you know, just adjusted that path. But I'll let that um, you know, discussion go to, uh, to, to Jen uh, in, in more detail. I mean, U UK asset swaps have been so volatile that you know, swaps actually look really very cheap now across markets, but gilts, on the other hand, look rich. Um, 
know, then there are other things, you know, a smattering of other things, things like, you know, long end France is, um, is, is clearly looking expensive now compared to uh, other sort of semi-core peers. Um, Spain is looking particularly cheap. Front end Italy has been expensive and, and remains expensive. But broadly, I would say, you know, given the size of the moves that we're talking about, actually, overall, what is perhaps most striking is how sort of well-behaved within the parameters of you know, recent behavior it all was. You know, broadly speaking, betas, uh, you know, the kind of sensitivities that you would normally expect, were sort of respected. Um, so you know, maybe that's the main takeaway. And I'll just say, finally, inflation link has been doing very well, as you'd expect. All right. So I want to dive into that volatility discussion a little bit more, because you know, in my experience, which is growing longer by the day, when you have these days or periods of time where you know you have what seems like you know relatively idiosyncratic things turning to a systemic feel. I mean, we didn't have like you know systemic. This wasn't 2020. This isn't global financial crisis. But you know, like you have these moves that are just exacerbated by things. Sometimes there's something else going on. I mean, in my mind, it's are these ripples from the SWIFT impact from sanctioning the Russian central bank? Or is there something about cash raising because companies aren't getting coupon payments from Russia that they thought, or, you know, are banks worried about lines of credit? I, you know, I don't have the answer, but I do, you know, sometimes wonder if there's kind of some other stuff going on. Now, I'm a little relieved that we haven't continued to see those kind of moves and it's not been exacerbated and I'm actually comforted by some degree that some of these things have come back. But, you know, from your perspective, do you think there's, have you seen any signs of, you know, like systemic distress or, you know, stress in front ends or anything that people should be worried about that may not be as apparent as, you know, just watching buns? So not at this stage, no. Um, now, it is something that people I know are, are focused on, and it goes quite a long way beyond just you know, fears of, a return, no, another Lehman kind of moment, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, some questions that uh, you know, I don't really know how to answer, to be honest with you, but are, are certainly out there revolve around things like, you know, what risk of cyber attack? Um, and if you know, Russia were to succeed in a cyber attack against you know, European banks, um, you know, have you thought about that? Well, the answer is it sounds pretty disastrous. No, I haven't done an awful lot of work on that. Clearly, we don't see that yet um, either. I would say, you know, most people's base case is probably that we don't see it. Nonetheless, it is obviously something that we should be um, should, should be thinking about um, and you know, trying to figure out a framework for. Okay. Now, when it comes to money markets, which you know, I, I guess is really the, the crux of that question, um, you know, SWIFT is not uh, sw switched off for the named Russian banks until the 12th of March. And so you know, at the moment, any impact that we see is really just fear of instability rather than reflecting probably uh, actual instability at this stage. Um, so you know, that's also important to, to bear in mind. I... No, I do trust to a large extent that you know, central banks with their you know, surveillance in, in a data sets um, you know, are much, much better placed than they were 13 years ago to, um, to, to spot this kind of thing and to sort of, you know, to, not to expect 
this, the, 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 the areas of pressure that might, uh, that might evolve. Again, certainly not my base case that, uh, that this will cause problems, but it's, uh, it's, it's worth just remembering that date. To date, and up until now, we've seen some reluctance, I think, uh, or signs of reluctance at least, uh, with clients to, to term out repo. So you know, it seems like activity, at least in Europe, has been um, being kept short. And you know, this fear of, uh, of systemic kind of instability might be part of that. Um, repo has been richening again in, in Europe um, this week. And you know, I mean, obviously you can see that as well in, in asset swaps. I mean, I think the central bank uh, will, you know, will, will have some, you know, will be monitoring that closely. Um, not to say that they will necessarily come with a new facility or anything like that in the short term to do anything to deal with uh, with that particularly. But we did see today, for example, the German finance agency um, create some more of a particularly squeezed bond in order to, to, to have it available to, um, to, to repo into the market. So, you know, this is something which is being um, you know, monitored at some level uh, by those who have the power to do something about it. And finally, I'll just say, you know, FX forwards, Kind of see they, they seem okay. I mean, there was a knee-jerk uh, widening, a you know, very significant knee-jerk widening, which has also since um, tightened back considerably. Yeah, driven by that demand for dollars. But all right, so shifting gears a little bit, we do have the ECB next week. Um, blackout started. Um, what are you expecting there? I mean, obviously they're they're the closest to um, the conflict, but also um, you know the first monetary policy make a response officially beyond speeches that we'll see. Yeah, so I think that really for the ECB, flexibility is the watchword. And um, no, so much so that yesterday, although we were looking for maybe a little bit more guidance from the chief economist, Philip Lane, um, you know, just before we go into the, we went into this blackout, we're now in this blackout period. Um, you know, he really didn't say anything. It was, um, you know, I, I think, at this late stage, you know, the upside for him in tying their hands in any in any way at all, um, you know, just one week out, you know, just wasn't there. So, what are we expecting? Um, no, we still expect the PEP, the PEPP, to end um, to, to at the end of this month. So that announcement uh, will be will be made once and for all. We are looking for them to to suggest rather than be more definitive. Um, that they will, uh, that they're open to the possibility of ending quantitative easing altogether this year. So recall in December, they set out a path for quantitative easing that was essentially you know, tapering down successively to 20 billion euros per month from a current, from then you know, more like sort of you know, 90 billion say per month um, and they were going and, and they were going to get there by October and then it was just sort of projected at that basic level um, in, 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 into the in, I guess infinity in the future um, you know since then markets have been expecting them to accelerate that taper timeline considerably we don't think that they will be prescriptive about that they'll leave the door open and so I, I we're, we're looking for them to claw back some flexibility around the way that they talk about that. And in particular, you know, not just to emphasize the, the pace at which they can reduce, but also the, you know, a certain amount of symmetry so that they can, you know, so that we 
will expect that they are open to increasing again if they need to. So, so those are the two main points. Um, then just one minor point, I think, is but no, nonetheless important, uh, you know, particularly in the front end. We think that they will, they, they, they use this language um, in their forward guidance where they say, we will continue uh, quantitative easing until shortly before uh, we start to raise rates. And so that means, and that has, led the market to understand that there's this tight link between when you when you say you'll end quantitative easing and when you when you'll actually start raising rates and we think that they'll drop that so that we can increasingly believe that they can stop qe but not that not necessarily in the short term then leading to a rate hike so that lag between the end of qe and first rate hike um being made longer in a sense yeah, and as you said, that gives some flexibility to things, especially in a dynamic situation we've got here. All right, thanks, Giles. Uh, really appreciate that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and bring in John Navruzzi. All right, so that's the ECB side of things. In the U.S., you know, we did hear from Powell this week. Any main takeaways? And then perhaps just a general overview on how the dynamics in the market this week have changed our views, if at all. Uh, yeah, so Powell gave... Uh... At the time of recording, we only have the first day of Powell's testimony in front of Congress. So he spoke to the House and uh, he, he was much more frank than we kind of expected him to be. He gave a lot of the, the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, thinking patterns outright. So he basically confirmed the 25 basis point rate hike for March, which is now pretty much in line with what market is pricing. And uh, even we're debating within the team and to us, it all seems like he's closer to being between no hike and 25 basis points as opposed to 25 basis points and 50, which is understandable given uh, all the recent geopolitical developments. You would see you know, the growth worries taking precedence over the immediate term inflation worries. So that's one. We, unless anything goes completely unexpected out of uh, you know, unpredictably, we will get a 25 basis point hike and, and the hiking cycle will, will begin from March. Second, he touched upon the balance sheet normalization process. He kind of almost formalized their uh, thinking around a little bit more about the modalities. So we have, uh, in his view, it takes the process takes about three years of balance sheet rundown. Of course, they could be a little bit more aggressive uh, given the inflation pickup, but they we highly doubt that they would use any active asset sales to reduce their balance sheet, which means that even with a high cap, say something like 60 billion in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgages, they would start reaching capacity issues uh, early next year uh, without active sales. There's just simply not enough mature securities rolling off the balance sheet to allow for a you know like a full 60 billion uh, runoff every single month, except for the refunding months. But that being said, the takeaway for the balance sheet is it's going to take about three years. They're likely to start sometime after the first hikes. So our estimate is still for a May announcement and a June effective start, and then quickly ramp up to the 60 billion, are, again, our estimate of what they're gonna allow monthly uh, balance sheet runoff in treasuries, and then uh, avoid any active sales and see how it goes. And they're going to gauge the level of reserves in the system, and they're going to dynamically try to see what the banking system needs, what are the optimal level of reserves, and let's stick to that. They're going to let the economy grow a little bit into the Fed's balance sheet as well, not just simply you know, offload whatever they've bought over the past couple of years. 
Uh, so those are the two main takeaways. See, underscores the strength of the economy, the uncertainties around near times, and the persistence of inflation, and the Fed is going to start making moves. All right, what about our views on the market? Obviously, huge volatility, five-year yields fell 30 basis points over two days, given a lot of that back. Um, maybe just on both just direction, but also on curve. Absolutely. So looking a little bit more medium term, our views haven't really changed given the the persistence of inflation, the strength and uh, on the underlying strength in the economy. However, in the in the very near term, given all the uncertainty around us, we have stopped out of our trades. So we had a uh, we had a view of uh, higher front end rates due to the repricing of terminal rate from the Fed. So our view was, you know, we positioned we had positioned ourselves with short uh, 2023 December sulfur contracts, October Fed funds with the risk of the Fed stepping up with a larger hike later on in the year. Uh, we we stopped out of those just because. Uh, it is not the right time. Uh, it is not the right time to keep these on. The core view could be right, but given all the volatility, it's just untenable to hold on to these positions, even with a high conviction over the medium term. Similarly for the curve, we had five studies flatteners on. Uh, we still believe in the, the background of the trade. We still believe in the core of the trade fundamentally, but with volatility like that, it's just not realistic to expect that things cannot go you know, 20, 30 base points against us before going in our favor. So we will be actively monitoring to see if any further uh, pressure in uh, in markets, both liquidity and in funding markets in general, uh, show up, if we can get any better entry points. But just in general, with this level of uncertainty and with a, a tail for risks skewed that much to the, to the downside, or at least like a distribution that allows for such a massive downside, I don't think it's the right time to be uh, implementing your short fixed income uh, ideas. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, especially because it seems like all signs against all my personal hope is that it feels like this is going to drag on rather than be solved anytime soon, either diplomatically or militarily. So I think there's going to be plenty of um, not just perhaps new opportunities to engage in these kind of trades, but also I think there's going to be plenty of volatility for all of us. So all right. Well, thanks, Giles. Thanks, John. Um, and thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Bondcast. As always, please remember to hit subscribe so you can watch our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And hit the like button so it's easier for others to find. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.